Well, we are in Romans chapter 9, and we are in uh, what I kind of said is more that the Romans 8 is the most comforting passage, chapter of all Romans. Romans 7 to me is the most difficult chapter of Romans. Romans 8, as far as teaching goes, Romans 8 is the most comforting chapter of Romans. And Romans 9 is the most controversial chapter in Romans. And not because God's word is controversial, but because our understanding uh, oftentimes is, these things are hard for us to understand. Even Peter wrote about Paul's writings that some of his writings were difficult to to grab hold of and, and grasp. And that's not a bad thing for us to labor in the word. So with that said... I'm going to pray, and then we will get into the, the study tonight. Uh, we're, we started it last week, so we're going to pick up at the midway point this week. So let's go ahead and pray together. Lord God, Father, we thank you for this time together, and I thank you for each and everyone who's uh, just made it here tonight, that you've brought them here safely. For those who are not with us tonight, we just ask for your mercy upon them, that you might uh, heal them if they're sick. Lord, if they're away, uh, if they're down the tree lighting, just bless them. And Lord, let them be lights to all those around. And we do pray over there, our little booth down there, that many children would just be ministered to as they pray for children and families down there. And uh, Lord God, now as we open up your word, give us understanding. May, may I bring glory to you and the words of my mouth be honoring to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I might have to use glasses tonight. I, my... <laughs> My eye, I know everybody's laughing at me today. My eyes are really, really tired. Uh, I, I had a, yesterday a memorial in the morning and um, a, a wedding at, in the afternoon. And then preaching this morning, I, my head was starting to hurt. So I, I um, got some glasses. But I know. You know, it's funny because uh, Laura had these readers and I was kind of making fun of her for them. And then I put them on and it was like everything was in HD. It was amazing. So... Uh, so, uh, I, I, my wife and I in 2020 were able to go to Rome in Italy. And I, I would say that, that prior to 2020, I never really appreciated art, but when I arrived there in Rome, I still didn't really appreciate art, but it was when we took the tour of the Vatican that I really started to see art and go, wow, that's really incredible. Uh, some of the art, just the, the way the artist captured, especially Michelangelo, captured those things that he was trying to portray. And when you go into St. Peter's Basilica, Michael, I think you can turn me down a little bit, Richard. Uh, Michelangelo's uh, Pieta is right there in in St. Peter's Basilica. And it's an extraordinarily detailed and tender portrayal of the Virgin Mary holding Christ's limp body after he's been removed from the cross. And it's one of the artist's most cherished works. And it's, uh, it was carved and polished, and it was all done into a hyper finish. This marble was polished by the time he was 24 years old. Decades later, when Michelangelo is 72 years old, and he's even a better artist, he began work on the deposition about around 1547 uh, to 1555. And it, that was to depict Christ's body being taken down from the cross and that was now housed in the Museo dell'Opera del Duomo in Florence. And I saw this art, piece of art too. Of course, I didn't realize what I was looking at totally at that point in time. But uh, in this one, uh, things didn't go so smoothly. In fact, his friend, historian 
uh, Giorgio Vasari said that Michelangelo complained of a material flaw in the marble that made construction near impossible. And, of course, Michelangelo was actually known for being able to choose out marble that was good for working. And I actually have a picture here of this sculpture. But uh, this sculpture has actually been repaired. You see, uh, Michelangelo decided that he was just done working on this after eight years of work. And he took a hammer to it and just started destroying the sculpture. Uh, still to this day, there's, there's discussion of, and, and controversy over why he did this. But in the end, what it came down to is the artist was not happy with his artwork. And he had every right to destroy that artwork if he wanted to because it would belong to him. And so uh, later on, they tried to repair it. Uh, one of the, the uh, from, some from the church, the Catholic church came and just convinced him to give it to them. And so that was the finished one. But you'll notice that there's a leg missing, his left leg, where Michelangelo took that hammer to it. Well, we began Romans chapter 9 last week. And as I said before, this is one of the most controversial chapters. And part of the reason why is we're going to be talking about uh, those questions of God the potter uh, and the potter being able to sculpt vessels for his very own purposes, the purposes that he desires. And uh, when, we, when we get, as we get into Romans 9 here, last week I primed the pump, so to speak, with some gospel passages, John 3, 16 and 17, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, uh, Revelation 20, uh, 21, no, no, sorry, Revelation 22, uh, and I share with you some gospel passages because what I didn't want you to do is read Romans chapter 9 in isolation from the gospel, which tends to happen with many when they read Romans 9 because of how controversial some of the sayings are. Well, it's not that, that it doesn't need to be that controversial. And so where are we at? Well, in Romans 8, Paul finished talking about this incredible comforting idea that Jesus has worked out our salvation, that because of Jesus, we are not only more than conquerors in him, but that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that, 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 our, that he has not only saved us, but he has secured us in him, and how comforting that is. I still don't understand why people would want to argue uh, that, that, that Jesus is able to secure us, you know. And, and as far as that question of can I lose my salvation, I'm going to answer no way because I'm trusting in Jesus. You, I don't know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's my answer. I'm trusting in Jesus and I believe on the promises of Jesus. And, and that's where Romans 8 ends. But Romans 9 picks up with this deep question, what about Israel? Did God's word fell Israel? Uh, what does it say about God that Israel has missed out on their Messiah, that Israel has rejected the Messiah? Paul is anticipating these questions as he writes this letter. Uh, what does it mean that Israel has missed its Messiah? Did God's word or his promises fail Israel? Of course, we answer that with no. What does this say about God and what does it say about our present position before God? What does it say about the promises that God has made to us if Israel 
has missed their Messiah? And th- these are great questions that Paul anticipates before we ever even have a chance to think about it. He jumps into it in chapter 9. So Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is dealing with the problems, the problem associated with the condition of Israel. Um, so this, uh, these three chapters really are speaking to the context of that question of what about Israel? They're the, they're the, they, they're the ones who received the covenant, the promises, the law. What about them? Uh, what, what happens to Israel? And so that's where we're going here in, uh, through Romans 9, 10, 11. So keep that in frame when, as we think about the, what, Romans, what we're learning in Romans 9. Because if you forget that this is speaking directly about the problem with Israel, you're going to get off track here uh, because you'll make it about something that's not. So two examples uh, that Paul, we looked at last week that Paul illustrated from the text. The first example uh, was about Isaac. And that not, and from that example, we learned that not all those born of Abraham are Israel. That means that, that it's, it's the, uh, because there were two sons born to Abraham, there was Esau, or, or sorry, um, there was Ishmael and Isaac. But Isaac is the, the child of the promise. Isaac is Israel. Okay, so not everyone born through Isaac or by from descent of Abraham is Israel. See, and and of course Paul qualified with that that there's faith involved in being being part of Israel. Then the second example that Paul also gave us was that God is free to elect who He will and show mercy to whomever He wishes. And when we're speaking about elect or giving covenants. We're speaking specifically about giving the promises that, that God desires to give to those whom he wants to give them to. That he's under no obligation to uh, give them to everybody or a particular individual, but rather it's totally his choice. And we saw that with that controversial verse, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. We talked about that, and of course we said it wasn't an emotional hatred, but rather a uh, to Jacob went the promise of the covenant. Of course, we explored that a little bit further and in context last week. So now as we pick up here in verse 14, we're, we, we start with a question. And we're going to kind of backtrack a little bit because I, I skipped over uh, Pharaoh last week just uh, for the sake of time. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there <clears throat> unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And that's where we left off last week with this idea that God is not obligated to show mercy to all. Now, it doesn't mean that mercy isn't available to all, but we're talking about that he's not obligated, okay? And we, we shared the parable of the workers in the vineyard uh, at the end of last week. So, verse 17, 917, it says, For the scripture says that to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Okay, now as I said before, we can look at these passages and take them almost really controversial, like kind of like, ow, that sounds really harsh. God's just going to 
harden someone's heart. And, and what I want you to realize is in this third example that comes from the book of Exodus, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart does not preclude the exercise of Pharaoh's own will. That's what's really important here. It's actually quite the opposite. In fact, when we look at uh, these verses that speak of Pharaoh's heart being hardened, uh, the first two times are in reference to God predicting what will happen in the future. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. The future, looking at it from the future's perspective. Then the next seven references throughout Exodus um, are references that Pharaoh is said to have hardened his own heart. Okay, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then, uh, and then eventually we get to uh, where God is said to have hardened his heart. Now, the word became hard or hardened his heart, it still really means to strengthen up or shore up. When it says, when God says, I will harden his heart, I will shore it up. I will strengthen him up. So, so this is an issue of this is already where Pharaoh is at. Pharaoh is already resisting the will of God. He has no intention of complying to the will of God or relenting. Uh, but he's already decided that he will not let Israel, God's people, go. So uh, we read in Exodus that his heart became hard, that it was unyielding, that it became hard, was hard, unyielding, hardened, was hard, stubbornly refused. Uh, These are all uh, terms uh, that are used throughout the Exodus. So let's actually look at this passage that that Paul quotes in context here. If you'll turn with me over to Exodus chapter 9, Exodus chapter 9. And verse 13. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me, for at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart, and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet, you exalt yourself against my people and that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause... Very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, sin now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. So when we read this in context about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, we start to, to, to get a better understanding of this because actually what we see that is that God has been very merciful to Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh says, God says to Pharaoh that if, if, I, would have, um, if, if I would have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth, verse 15 says. Basically God said, if I would have done what you are deserving, if I would have come at you, with all my strength, you would have been wiped out, Pharaoh. This, that's what the reality is here. But 
I want you to know that I'm about to do this, this plague upon you. I'm going to send hailstones like you've never seen before. So if you don't want all of your animals to be destroyed, put them inside. Otherwise, they're gone. Now, does that sound like a pernicious God? Does it sound like God is just excited to, to make someone into this, mold somebody into this evil person or king so that he can just destroy him? No, it doesn't sound that way at all. It sounds actually like God is allowing Pharaoh to exist for the purposes of showing his strength and his power to the world. He put it on display. And, and when we consider it in the context of Egypt and Israel, certainly it was amazing that Egypt, all of Egypt got to see God's power. And it was amazing that all of Israel got to see that power. But it is only because of God's mercy that we are still speaking about that Pharaoh today. Because, uh, because God showed uh, his power through Pharaoh. And then we, we have it today as a proof that, that uh, God is sovereign and powerful and uh, is uh, reigning. So in God's infinite wisdom, he raised up this Pharaoh for that occasion so that in his rebellion against God, he might be an instrument for God's glory. And that's important. Now, what does it say about, about people who harden their hearts? Um, because I, I don't want you to think that God is actively, Romans is not saying that God is going out just trying to get people to harden their heart against him. He's preventing them from receiving the gospel. That's not at all what the case is here. Um, uh, because the, the real issue with Pharaoh is he was callous toward God, and he remained callous toward God. Hebrews 3.8 says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion and the day of trial in the wilderness. So there's a warning. Don't do this. Don't harden your hearts against God. Uh, in fact, in uh, 3 verse 15, it says, While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Uh, the people rebelled against God, and, and they went 40 years in the wilderness, and eventually they were, were kept from actually entering in the promised land, and that whole generation had to die off because of their hardened hearts. Uh, Hebrews 4, 7 says, again, he designates a certain day saying, in David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So this is an invitation and an encouragement to soften our hearts toward God, not to become callous toward God. And, and as far as an application goes for a Christian, this is certainly something I think we should be concerned with because I, I know that we've already received the Lord Jesus Christ as a born-again believer. We've been forgiven of our sin. But the Bible also warns us about not, uh, not um, uh, uh, being unyielding to the Holy Spirit or grieving the Holy Spirit of God. That we, we can actually continue to make uh, excuses for living in sin or, or taking part in sin in our lives. And that actually grieves the Holy Spirit of God where we're hardening our hearts and not not hearing uh, him or listening to him or being sensitive to, to him. And the sad part is the longer we expose ourselves to sin, the more callous our hearts become. And uh, really the opposite should be happening. When we come to Christ, we're, our heart of stone is removed, the Bible tells us, and a heart of flesh is given to us. 
uh, and it should remain soft and tender before our God, not calloused, and we just start ignoring him and not listening to this or, or dealing with conviction. So, verse 19, going on. Uh, Romans nine nineteen. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the things formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And we're going to stop there because he's going to ask some more questions. But now Paul again anticipates the que- a question from the reader. And I love how Paul does this. I mean, it, obviously he's writing an influence of the Spirit, but Paul is brilliant. And uh, that's one of the reasons why Romans is just this incredible book on uh, not only our salvation, but also just it, it's the, the pinnacle of theology, if you will, in the New Testament. Of course, it doesn't stand by itself, but it's just really incredible because he anticipates this question. Well, wait a minute. If God hardens hearts, why, am I, why is he going to hold me at fault? And, and, of course, we've already answered that, that it's not that God is hardening hearts to prevent people from salvation. But, but uh, because the, the, the reader, he anticipates his reader saying, for who can resist his will? If God has just ordained these things, why am I responsible? And so you can understand the conversation the way it would go. You come up to share the gospel with somebody and they say, well, God has yet to show me that I'm elected to salvation. And, <laughs> you know, it's that whole idea that, that well, I- until I'm moved in such a way, if God really uh, uh, chooses me and elects me, then I'll be saved. So I don't even have to worry about today. So I'm going to continue on in sin. Well, that's uh, poor theology altogether. It's poor soteriology as far as the doctrine of salvation goes. It- it's all around poor. Because Paul here says, says uh, first of all, you know, you, shouldn't, you don't have the right to ask that question. Um, as he anticipates this response, it's inappropriate, first and foremost, for the creature to even talk back to the creator. That, that's what he's going to say first. He doesn't, he, he's not even going to give the answer that you and I might want because he wants us to first and foremost understand that God is sovereign. He is the creator. And it's absolutely inappropriate for the creature to speak to the creator this way. Like you have some say. I know we don't like that idea. We want to be independent. We want to be freedom, free in our in independence. But listen, let me explain that. That is actually a satanic idea, that independence from God. You don't want independence from God. You want dependence upon God. And if you, have, if you approach God with an attitude of, I'm independent from you. Why? You owe me an answer, God. That's a satanic idea. It, it goes against God for, for you to think that God owes you anything. Uh, and, and so just like Michelangelo had one vessel that is in St. Peter's Basilica that was, is this beautiful, perfected piece in his eyes, he also had a vessel that he decided, it's not what I want. I'm going to destroy it. And Michelangelo, being the creator of his art, had every right and authority to do that. Even more so God, who has the power and the, of creation and the power to speak things into the existence, who is perfect, has the right to, to make things how he wills. Now, I don't want you to think that that's what Paul is saying here. 
Because remember, we're, at, we're talking specifically about what about Israel. We don't want to forget that. But we certainly should understand that who are you to talk back to God? That's, it's an important question. And I think this is also important for just our selfish nature. You know, of course, we see this with a child, a toddler, when they throw a fit in the store. And you as a parent are like, you have no right to do this. <laughs> you're going to get a spanking. Has anybody ever been there with a toddler where you're like, if you don't stop this, you're getting a spanking? I guess I'm the only parent. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You've all been there. Because you'd say that that behavior is absolutely inappropriate. And you have the authority to, to carry that out. And, and the, 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 the child, the toddler, or whatever the case is, who's throwing the fit and causing all this ruckus, uh, they have no right to act that way in such a dishonoring way. Well, let's look at this a little bit deeper. Paul says, does the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Now, when we speak about vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor, we're talking, some of your translations might say uh, a vessel for noble purposes and a vessel for ignoble purposes. Now, uh, when we consider this idea, I don't want you to think that we're talking about humans here because we're talking about vessels. Okay, that's important. We're talking about clay vessels, okay? Uh, so make, make sure to keep that in mind. Let me ask you this. What is the purpose of a clay vessel? What's the purpose? Hold stuff. What else? Whatever it was designed for. That is the purpose, okay? So some vessels are designed for pieces of art, and they might go on the first century mantle, right? Whatever that would be. Um, so, some vessels are created as, as beautiful artworks, and what do those vessels that were created for art do? They just sit there. That's it. They just look nice. It's great decoration. Other vessels are created to hold maybe beautiful, precious, fragrant oil. What does it do? It holds oil. <laughs> that beautiful, fragrant, fresh oil. Maybe some vessels were created to hold wine and it does that very thing until it's empty. And maybe another vessel's hold was made to, to get water from the well. And it's taken to the well daily and filled up and probably multiple times a day because I've seen the way uh, water goes in Africa and Usually it's a couple times a day that they're coming there with their jerry cans. And I, you can just imagine, man, it must have been even harder with clay vessels. You know, you don't want to drop that. Um, but, uh, and so even the vessels that were made for dishonor, which would be the ones used for simple everyday tasks, those are actually the vessels that are used the most. <laughs> and the vessels that are, are made for honorable things, like sitting on a mantle, uh, it's just doing what it was created to do, okay? And that's what Paul's argument is here. Turn with me for a moment, or uh, actually, let me read this to you. Isaiah 29, verse 15. I'm going to put it up here, and then we're going to turn to Jeremiah. Uh, we read, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, 
He did not make me or the thing formed, say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. And so here in Isaiah, as, as God is speaking uh, and, and giving this rebuke, he first challenges that, that the, 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 the person, the individual, thinks he can hide uh, things from God, deeds in the dark, uh, hide counsel from God, deep, deep from the Lord, that we can just submit that, that God doesn't know our hearts and know, know our, what we're thinking. In fact, in verse 16, he says, you turn things upside down. Are you crazy? Are, you're, you're, you're out of your mind. If you think that this is the way it works, shall the potter be regarded as a clay? I mean, can you imagine if a lump of clay, well, it wouldn't, okay? <laughs> it wouldn't decide to be the potter. It couldn't. It doesn't have the capability to do it. And so God says that the thing made should not say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. In fact, actually, God has all the understanding. So it's really hard for us to question God on these things. Turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18, and we're going to look at verse 1 once you get there. Jeremiah 18. Okay. By the way, you can probably tell what this section is going to be about because it says the potter and the clay at the top. The word, uh, 18 verse 1, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Now the first thing I want to say about this is, Jeremiah hears from the Lord, go to the potter's house. And Jeremiah doesn't say, well God, can't you just tell me here? My, my, my kids always do that, I'm like, Lucy, come here. Come here Rico. I hear nothing. Lucien. Lucy and Michelle. Right? We start expounding on names. Then finally I say, Lucy, did you call me? She's like, yeah. I said, yeah. Or did you hear me? Yeah, I said, yeah. I'm like, no, come to me. Don't just wait for me to yell across the house. I don't want to yell across the house, right? You should come. And Jeremiah recognizing who the Lord is and who he is, gets told, go to the potter's house. So he goes. And, and God allows the potter to be the illustration for Jeremiah as he watches. The, I mean, he just shows up at the potter's house and starts watching the potter. He's just waiting to hear from the Lord. I'm here, Lord. So he's just watching, observing the potter. And, I, and by the way, I just, as a side note, I think it's amazing the things that we stop and observe, the things we can learn about the Lord as we observe his creation. But He's observing this potter, and, and uh, he's, he notices that the potter, as he's making something, it becomes marred in his hand. It doesn't work out. So the potter takes it and reforms it into something else. So now we get into the, the word from the Lord. Verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And 
the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. And so now this word comes to Jeremiah and God reveals something about himself. And, and he reveals something about his judgment. If God speaks to a nation and, and concerning judgment and that nation relents, then, if, or sorry, if they turn from their evil, he will relent. He'll, he'll turn back from his judgment. Well, it doesn't sound like God's just going around hardening hearts and raising up objects of destruction for fun. It doesn't seem like that's his character at all. And that's not at all what Paul was teaching us, okay? What we learn about God is that actually he cares very much what our response is to him. Not that he needs us to respond a certain way, but he cares about our response. And so he says if the nation relent, uh, relent, or repents of their evil, he'll relent. And we saw that happen with Jonah, Right? Jonah, the prophet, called to go to Nineveh. And Jonah not only didn't go to Nineveh, but he tried to go the opposite way. I remember telling that story at VBS one year. And I used uh, help try, trying to help them understand what it was. And I said, instead of going to L.A., he went to Florida. And so later on that day, I was asking the kids, I was like, and where did Jonah go? And they said, Florida. And I was like, no. <laughs> that was just an illustration. But, but Jonah not only didn't go to Nineveh, he went the opposite way. God ends up having him swallowed by a well to get him to respond to what he wants him to do. Not like Jeremiah who goes to the potter's house when he's told to go to the potter's house. And Jonah has a, a, he's upset at Nineveh. Nineveh's the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were awful people. They were godless people. They, they, uh, they did incredibly awful things. Yet God wanted Jonah to take this message. So Jonah gets there eventually. And even when he gives the message, it's like he doesn't even care. Walks through the town. You're all going to die. You're all going to die. You're all going to die. <laughs> you know, it's almost, you're, you're not sure if Jonah is celebrating while he gives the message or, or just indifferent, you know. And of course, Nineveh responds with repentance, tearing their clothes. They all repent. And Jonah's sitting out the city for the main event. He's sitting outside the city. He's got his front row seat. <laughs> Watch this, this city burn. And it doesn't. And then Jonah's all mad. <laughs> And, and God says, why are you so mad? He's like, well, I, I knew that if I went and told them and, and they repented, you would relent from your judgment. Man, the problem is us. It's not God. And, and so, so here we learn about God and, and from this illustration of the potter and the clay that even uh, nations who God promises or, or wants to do good for, if they do evil, he can change or, uh, or he can re- relent from the good that he promised them. And so we're talking about Israel here. And, and in this Romans 9, we see that, that Israel has done evil, and as a result of their evil, as a result of their rejection of Messiah, God is pulling back. And we're, we'll, we'll get into that more in chapter 11. Okay, so let's go to verse 22 of chapter 9. Looking at the time here. Okay, verse 22. It says, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, 
and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews, but only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, I'm going to stop there for a minute. And the first thing I want to make sure we're clear on is that uh, anyone have a loved one who's not saved? I, I do. You know, I've been praying for some of my loved ones who, who are unsaved. What this passage is not saying is that, that God is going to glory through the judgment of your loved one. That's not what this passage is saying. So I just want to make sure we're clear on that right from the get-go. And certainly it would go against the gospel. This is why we primed the pump last week with the gospel passages. Because we know that God offered his son for us, for, for our sin. And all who, who turn to him and all who believe on him can have eternal life. So what is, what is Paul talking about here? So he says, what if, okay, what if is not a statement, it's a question. What if, so we have this, these, these, uh, these questions. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I'm going to pause there for a moment and just talk about this this idea of prepared, okay? Uh, you might be reading this as God has formed you or that loved one or someone else. He, he has made them solely for the purpose of destruction, okay? This is what uh, often is called double predestination, among Calvinism, it, it's, uh, it's the idea that God has ordained certain people for wrath and there's no way. They don't even have an opportunity of salvation. That is not what this is teaching. And I want to make sure we're clear on this. The word prepared is, this is fun, it's a perfect middle participle. Yeah, say that ten times fast. Perfect middle participle. Perfect middle, yeah, I can't even do it three times. And what that is, is, is in the Greek is describing a past action with a continuing state or result. And, and so what, what we're saying is that it could be reflexive as in prepared themselves for wrath. So that would be reflexive that, that the individual has prepared themselves for wrath. Um, and it could also be passive, were prepared. But the thought is, it, no matter what, the thought is the same, that the vessels of wrath are in a state of readiness or ripeness to receive God's wrath. So what, what we're saying here is that these individuals that it would be speaking about, they already deserve the wrath of God. It's not that they're earning the wrath of God, but that God is enduring, he's long-suffering with these vessels of wrath. He's allowing them to continue to exist that he might show the riches of his glory in the ve- uh, uh, to the vessels of his mercy. That we might all be able to look at God and say, wow, you are a merciful God. Consider this, when, when Abraham was told about the land that he'd receive, God said your people will be in, in, have to go into Egypt in bondage for how many years? Anybody remember? 400 years. And does anybody remember why he said that they had to go in bondage? What was going to happen in that 400 years? Well, he's going to make a nation out of them. But more than that, the peoples of the land, 
the Canaanites, their sin had not come to its fulfillment yet. He, they weren't ready for judgment yet. God was going to be merciful to them and long-suffering for them, allowing them time to repent. These are the people that would do child sacrifice. In fact, they've uh, uh, uncovered a huge place in Israel, archaeological, or a dig there. And, and it's kind of funny because the location of this, this temple, this pagan temple, that dates back to that time period, um, it, it's uh, in the middle of kind of like a walking trail. Like, you know how we have bicycle trails off the riverbed here in San Diego? Well, th- there's this ancient temple al- along the, their park trail. And, and it, 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 there at that temple, they used it to sacrifice babies to their gods, and this was ongoing. Uh, and God said, their, their sin has not yet come up yet. I, I'm going to be long-suffering with them while you, you guys are there in Egypt and I build you into that nation, I'm going to be long-suffering with the people and eventually I'll come and judge them. And so, so we see that there, it wasn't that God was preparing them. They're already ripe for wrath, but yet God bears with them. Well, who are these vessels of wrath? Paul answered this already in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It's the unsaved. Look at uh, Romans 1, 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, what does that say? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is who are the objects of wrath. Those who are ungodly, unrighteous, and who suppress the truth and righteousness. It's not that they're building up uh, toward judgment. They already are deserving of judgment, as was some of you, and as was you and I. We were already ripe for judgment, but yet God bore with us, and we came to Christ. Those who oppose God and refuse to turn to him are, uh, are then prepared by him for wrath. They're storing up God's wrath against themselves. Romans 2, 5 says this, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So those that God bears with, that are refusing to turn to him, they are treasuring up for yourself wrath. That's not a good treasure to store up. I'm just going to tell you right now, don't store up treasures of wrath. It's a bad idea. It's not good. Rather, repent of your sin. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive that wonderful salvation and that new life. Let the Lord Jesus take your wrath upon himself on that cross. That's what he did for us, right? Uh, We receive that gift because he took it upon himself. All right. So, um, verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there, uh, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And of course, this is a beautiful prophecy of God calling in the Gentiles. I will call them my people who were not my people, Okay. And, and so God opens up the opportunity and the door for the Gentiles. Let's, uh, that's Hosea 2.23. Then verse 27 of chapter 9 says, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. 
for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. So we we are told uh, first in verse 25 and 26 that God is going to call a people who are not his people. He's going to open up the doors for the Gentile. Then in verse 27, we read from Isaiah that God is going to uh, save this remnant, that he's going to, to save this remnant of Israel. So he hasn't, he hasn't written them off yet, and that's what's important. Uh, he's not finished. That, that's a quote from Isaiah 10, 22 through 23. And then it says in Isaiah, or sorry, Romans 9, 29, and as, I, and as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we uh, would have been made like Gomorrah. And um, the, uh, the point here is that, that the Lord could have shown his wrath to Israel. He could have completely made them like Sodom and Gomorrah, but he didn't. Uh, because of his wonderful mercy, he has this remnant. And that's from Isaiah 1.9. Now I'm going to go to verse 30 real fast here. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And so here Paul says that the Gentiles have received this righteousness, and they did it by faith. But Israel tried to continue to do it by the law, by works. Now, Israel can keep the law. They just need to believe in Jesus by faith. They, they can continue keeping the traditions of their fathers, keeping the traditions of Moses, but they can't keep them with, with any idea of saying that this will save me, that this will, will overcome my evil deeds, and this will bring about righteousness in me. No, they still need to believe in that incredible cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who is also the rock of offense. And now I want to say this about Jesus. Jesus will either be a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, or he will be your cornerstone. Those are our options. You will either build your life upon him or he will crush you. That's what it comes down to. And Israel decided that they didn't need him. They didn't need him, and he became that rock of offense. Now, God is not done yet. He is going to finish his work, and we will get into that next week as we get into chapter 10. So with that said, we're going to close in prayer. And I want to encourage you, just as we think about this, this week's study, what a marvelous work and what an incredible love that God has shown to you and to me, that he has opened up salvation to us. Don't take that for granted. It's amazing that God has welcomed us in to, to, to his wonderful uh, covenant, and it's incredible. And so we should never take that for granted. We should just always give him back our praise. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this word that, that you had Paul so thoughtfully 
right out for us that we might have a better understanding. And Lord, we look forward to that day in which Israel will return. And we pray, Lord, for the peace of Israel, for your return. And until that day, Lord, we also want to pray that Israel would begin to turn toward you. Lord, I thank you for John and Tiffany Davidson, our missionaries there. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to bear fruit as they've moved back there and you're establishing them. Lord, bless their language studies and bless their relationships that they're building with the people around them. We pray, Lord God, that you might start a wonderful church plant. And Lord, that, that John would be able to hand that off to a Jew and that you would build your church there in Israel. And Lord God, for us, we thank you. We give you all the praise and all the glory that you provided for us salvation. Lord, we thank you that you saw us, that you bore with us, that you endured with us and allowed us to come to the knowledge of you. Thank you for the new life we have in you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the promise of eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of the resurrection and the hope. Thank you, Lord, for your presence, that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, we thank you for all these wonderful treasures you've given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to correct something. I, I misread verse 29. And uh, I was like, wait a minute. Wait, how come I didn't read that? Uh, I, I said, unless the Lord of the Sabbath is uh, Sabaoth, which is Lord of the host. So I just want to correct that. But, you know, uh, Romans 10 tells us, all who believe on the name of the Lord shall not be sh- put to shame. And praise God for that. That, that, that it is in Christ that we are given the victory and we will never be put to shame because of him. God bless you and keep you. May he give you his peace. May he shine his face upon you and may he give you comfort this week. Amen.